Let's bow our heads and begin on a prayer. Loving God, we recognize you and dwell in your presence within, around, and in the encounter of those around us. We pray that you are with us tonight, and we thank you for the gift of today. We thank you for the gift of the drink in our hand that is symbolic reminder that like the grains, we are rooted in the earth. Like the water, we are washed clean. Like the hops, we recognize the bitter moments in our lives where we grow in community with one another. And like the yeast, we rise each other as an entire community. Be with us tonight. Be with us as our conversation evolves. And bless us that we may be like yeast for one another, rising each other as saints. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hello. Good evening. My name is Trevor Gunlock, and I like to party. I wasn't just quoting Hot Rod there, for any of you Hot Rod fans. But I say that line with a little bit of seriousness to it. Oftentimes when you hear that line, it's in a joking manner, right? Someone comes and tells you that they like to party. You can't be taking them seriously. But I want you to take the idea of partying seriously, because I think the idea of celebration is worth taking seriously. My background is in virtue ethics, and when I was deciding what area of ethics I wanted to focus in on, I realized that I was working with college students, with young adults. And in working with young adults, I realized that in virtue ethics, we recognize the small moments in our lives that bring about the greatest fulfillment. And instead of looking at the huge moments that we can analyze through ethics, that are very rarely coming up in our lives, we want to recognize those small moments that we recognize over and over again. And being on a college campus, there was something that I would recognize oftentimes two nights a week, sometimes three or four if people were pretty crazy. It was called celebration. Uh, they called it something very different. And I thought, why not devote my study to this? Why not devote my writing to this? Because if we can transform the small thing into something great, then we can grow closer to God in it. And thus came about learning how to celebrate. And I want to start this talk by welcoming you on this journey. And I like to tell stories. So I'm going to start with a story. And I recently got married two and a half years ago. I don't know if that's quite recent anymore. I like to think it's still recent. It's wonderful. And when you join someone's family, well, let me start with this. Before entering into a talk like this, you want to break down some preconceived notions, right? This guy in front of you seems crazy. He likes to party. You all come to this with different ideas of what celebration means. So let's put out on the table what our preconceived notions of celebration are. I'm going to do that with two quick stories. My first one. So when you get married, if you're married or you have any friends who are married, you know that when you enter into your spouse's family, you don't, even, you don't only marry your spouse, you marry their entire family, right? And in marrying their entire family, you marry a lot of interesting traditions, to say the least. Now, I learned which traditions I could uh, pick and prod at and poke at, being like, what is this? And then there are others like the Macy's Day Parade that you just don't touch. You don't touch that one. Uh-uh. No touch. But there was one interesting tradition that, as an outsider, I had never experienced. And I want to walk you through this. Maybe it might sound a little crazy. Pardon me with this. Just bear with me as I go through this tradition. But it's an interesting one. So every year... When the weather started getting a little bit colder outside, it was like kind of sweater weather, you know, the perfect temperature. Every time of the year about that, my wife's whole family would pick a date 
they would all gather around back at home and they would choose a day where they would all bundle up in their sweaters and I was just kind of going along for the ride. I'm like, all right, I'm here, I'm ready to go. And we went outside and we walked around outside for a little bit, just looking around, looking around. And then we came upon a plant and then immediately her family took that plant, removed it from the ground. Mind you, this is a very healthy plant. <laughs> removed it from the ground and went ahead and put it in their house. Have any of you heard of this absurd tradition before? From an outsider, this tradition looked a little odd. We always did synthetic trees, by the way. And from this, I want you to think that just like the Christmas tree celebration, celebration itself is something that we've always done, and maybe we've never thought to ask why we do it. It's something we've always done but we might misunderstand it, okay? So hold that as one point. We've always done it. We don't really know why we do it. Some of you might fall into this other category. Now, my wife and I are big fans of the TV show New Girl. Any fans? Yeah? I love a Winston Bishop's t-shirt collection. I feel like if I could have a spirit animal, it would be his t-shirt collection. I love them. And we were watching this TV show pretty regularly, and I was sitting on the couch, pulled up Netflix, had it up, and Kayla was in the kitchen getting a glass of water. And she yells over, she's like, Trevor, what's the name of the next episode? So I look up at the screen and I see, all right, season three, episode eight. And I yell out to her, I said, oh, it's Menace. So I think nothing of it. I go back on my phone, I'm scrolling through Instagram. She's like, okay, Menace, that's, a, that's an interesting title for uh, episode name. So she comes back over, she sits down next to me and she kind of just looks at me and I'm like, you, well, you want to start the show? She's like. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah. She's like, what's the name of the episode again? Menace. Trevor, that's menus. Oh. So second, it's right in front of us, and we might misunderstand it. So I invite you into this conversation on celebration, maybe as if it's something you've always done before and you've never thought to question it, or it's right in front of your eyes, and you might misunderstand it. So why learning how to celebrate, right? Why learning? So learning assumes that you don't know how to celebrate, which sounds like kind of a crazy thing. If I asked you, hey, do you know how to party? You'd be like, well, well, yeah, I know how to party. So why learning? And I want to start by focusing first on the learning portion of this, because we look at the saints. We look at the saints in our tradition, and the saints were those people who either continually strove to learn with their heart or their soul through contemplation, or through their mind, through the intellect, through mystagogy, through continual catechesis. But oftentimes, if we leave out celebration, we're left with these images of saints who are always frowning. We get these images of saints who we only hear renouncing and fasting and studying and giving up. But I want to say that that's an incomplete story of what a saint looks like in the modern day. So what happens if we add back in celebration to this mix? If we take these two seemingly polar opposites in our faith and bring them together, learning and celebration, what do we get? And I say, we're left with a smiling saint. We're left with saints of the modern day who can approach any encounter, any situation, and pray in them joyfully. If I haven't sold you yet, I invite you to put on a pair of glasses with me. So these are what I call theological beer goggles. 
Not too sacrilegious, is it? So let's say some of you are coming here and you're not all about the whole beer thing. You're not all about the whole celebration idea. You're really into that whole, you know, I love this fasting and the sad saints and no beer. Okay. So maybe you're not about that life, but you're all about the theology. Well, for you, I invite you to look through the lens of theology as we talk about the topic of beer and celebration. Now, for the rest of us who might be approaching it from the other lens, who are like, hey, I love this beer in my hand, but I don't know about this whole theology thing, I invite you to put on your theological beer goggles also. And let's look at this topic of theology through the lens of beer. Will you join me on that journey? Awesome. So how I'm going to frame this talk is in three questions. And every time you see the screen, I'm going to make a toast. And you're all going to have a toast with me. Sound good? So this first toast, I'm going to teach you one. It's my favorite uh, religious toast. And I'm going to say to the Blessed Mother, and you say, and her most chaste spouse. It just rolls off the tongue. It's a good one. To the Blessed Mother, and her most chaste spouse. Cheers. So I've found that in doing theology and studying philosophy and teaching it and working with young adults, that by simply telling something, hey, this is a theology, you should believe it, people very rarely buy into that. But it's through asking good, true questions and reflecting on them together that we actually have deep-set, deep-rooted change. So I've been trying to answer these questions for the past six years of doing research on this topic, and I'm inviting you tonight to think about those exact questions. These three questions will be the structure for the talk moving forward. I want to start by looking at what we celebrate. What do we celebrate as a Christian people? Second, I want to talk about why do we celebrate? Why as humans do we celebrate? And then why as Christians must we celebrate? And third and last, we're going to look at this topic of who is it that actually celebrates? Who is that person that we should be focusing on as the, the great person of celebration? So first, I'm going to ask that question. What do we celebrate? And I want you to talk for a minute amongst yourselves and answer the question when you're at a celebration, when you're at a party, when you're at a bar, when you're out with friends, whatever it may be, what are you celebrating in that moment? So we're going to answer this first question. We're going to answer, what is it that we are celebrating? And to do so, I want to look at the traditional American holiday, because I believe holidays are a great lens that we can look through to understand how to answer this question. And I think that in looking at a couple of the major holidays, we have changed the names of these holidays. We've shortened them. We've given them nicknames. And in some cases, we've actually changed them to something that reflects what we're actually celebrating in that holiday. So I'll explain that here as we go along. What's the nickname for St. Patrick's Day? You can just yell it out. St. Patty's Day, OK. Thanksgiving, this is the best example. What is the good nickname for Thanksgiving? Turkey Day. Turkey Day. Awesome. Independence Day? Fourth of July. And All Hallows Eve? Halloween. Halloween. People are like, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So with each one of these holidays, we recognize that behind them, we've changed the name to celebrate and to show symbolically what we're celebrating. So for St. Patrick's Day, what are we celebrating? We're oftentimes celebrating wearing the color green, and drinking beer, right? If you're an outsider looking in not knowing anything about it, what would you guess that they're celebrating? For Thanksgiving, eating turkey and watching football and maybe the parade. I'm not supposed to touch that one. Fourth of July, what are we celebrating? Outsider looking in. Merca, wearing jean shorts and shooting off at fireworks and drinking beer. 
And last, we have Halloween. If you don't know what's going on, what do you think we're celebrating? Probably dressing up as a lumberjack, uh, wearing as little clothes as possible, and drinking beer, right? I worked on a college campus. I had that one's right there. So in looking at each one of these, we realize that our holidays, from an outsider view, are celebrating specific actions, an action associated with it. And I want to say that simply celebrating an action can become problematic. Let's see why. Let's go to a great wisdom figure in my life. This is really uncharacteristic for my dad, by the way. My dad never does goofy things. He, he's the guy who wears like the khaki uh, short shorts with the middle-aged man socks, the white New Balance, and the hat that he like sits on all the time. Love it. And so this is really out of character for him. But this was our wedding photos. And in it, he decided, he's like, let's flex. I'm like, what? And my dad said, he asked me this question every night before we would go to bed. My brothers and I, we would pray every night before we would go to bed, and we would have a three-part prayer. And my parents would ask us, they would first say, what are you thankful for? Second is, what do you ask God's forgiveness for? Now remember, I have three brothers. So oftentimes our sins that we are asking forgiveness for involved picking on one or the other, so we very rarely admitted to that in front of each other. We're like, eh, those are Boston and brothers. Amen. And the third one was offering, asking a prayer of petition. What do you pray for? Now, when it was my turn to lead, I always asked the questions, what are you thankful for? What do you confess? What do you pray for? But my dad, the creator of this prayer time, asked a little bit different of a question. My dad asked, for whom or for what would you like to pray? Not only was his grammar far superior to ours, he was asking a completely different question. Now, my brothers and I never picked up on that, and we always answered the same way. We'd be like, oh, we pray that we have a good night's sleep tonight. We pray that we have a good day at school, and that volleyball goes well, and that algebra is not algebra because algebra is no fun. That algebra disappears. And we pray that we have a good time with our friends. Amen. Because we always wanted to go to bed and escape that space because we're a bunch of teenage boys. So we always answered the question, for what do you pray? But we never answered the question, for whom do you pray? Now, I never realized this until I came home from college and my little brother, who was in high school at the time, started riddling off this list of names for people for whom he wanted to pray. And I realized, wow, that's more difficult than what I was doing. He was giving his, fit, his prayer a face and praying specifically per, for a person. Now, what happens when we apply that same idea to celebration? What happens if we ask not for what are we celebrating, but who are we celebrating? So our question changes a little bit. Our question changes from what are we celebrating instead to who are we celebrating? Because the modern saint doesn't simply celebrate actions. Actions aren't a negative thing in themselves, but it's very simple with actions, like it was for me and my prayer, to get very self-centered in those prayers. And similar in our celebration, it's simple for our celebrations to become very self-centered unless we're focusing on another person. So let's see what happens when we return to those holidays and we ask what we're truly celebrating behind each one of those. St. Patrick's Day, who are we celebrating? A unifying saint, a saint with an incredible history and story. How neat. Thanksgiving, it's in the name. We're giving thanks and celebrating those in our lives, our friends, and our family, those around us. How much does that transform that celebration? Independence Day, we're celebrating the history of a country, the history of a people, 
We're celebrating our constitution, our freedom. Amidst oppression, the many oppressions, we're celebrating a great history. And last, All Hallows Eve, we're invited to celebrate all the saints. So the saint in the modern day doesn't celebrate simply actions, but celebrates people. Celebrates actions, not people. Now, working on a college campus, I oftentimes took very uh, ordinary views, very ordinary sights, things that I would see just in passing, and I oftentimes wanted to symbolically line them up with one another. It was a great teaching strategy. And there were two images, two lines that I would see almost every weekend, two different lines, and I want to say at the beginning, what people were waiting in line for, I don't want to compare them too directly to sound sacrilegious, so this is just me covering my butt. But I think that there's a great symbolic depth behind the meaning of the people standing in these lines waiting for that at the end. So one of these lines took place on Saturday night, and one of them took place only a few hours later on a Sunday morning. Now the first line, what do you think the people are waiting in line for? Tim's or, well I guess you guys aren't allowed to have kegs at UD, but at Marquette they did. And oftentimes, people with the mindset going to a party, wanting to celebrate actions, would stand in this line, and they had this look on their face of, I'm here to get that beer. And I'm getting that beer because I want intoxication, and my friends are here, but kind of, that's not my focus, it's the beer. They're there to celebrate the action. So I recognized, and I said, okay, that's, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous thing, here simply to celebrate the action. But then a couple hours later, I would see oftentimes those same students in a very similar formation, waiting for something else. And they oftentimes have the same exact mindset. What do you think that second line was waiting for? The bathroom? Not quite, actually quite the opposite. They were in line waiting for the Eucharist. And this was a dangerous mindset, simply going to mass to participate in this activity. I'm here to receive that so I can go home. Now what happens if we take both of these situations of celebrating an action and transform them with what my dad taught us into celebrating people? Now in the first one, the party changes completely. The beer becomes a vehicle by which people can encounter one another. It's simply a means to an end, not an end in itself. It can transform the entire celebration. And in the Eucharist, oh my gosh, we encounter people to the nth degree. So walking up to the Eucharist, it's encountering Christ, not only in the Eucharist, but encountering Christ in persona Christi and the priest, in the community gathered, and also in the word of God. So at the party, there's one form of encounter, the community of saints around us. But at the Mass, if we're celebrating people truly, we're celebrating Christ in four ways. That's beautiful. So I want to recap that. We changed what do we celebrate to why do we celebrate because a true modern day saint celebrates the people around them rather than the action that they're doing. Okay, let's have another toast. Sound good? Let's raise our glass and this is one that I shamelessly stole off the internet. It's kind of cheesy so I, I warn you about this one. May neighbors respect you, trouble neglect you, the angels protect you and heaven accept you. Cheers. That wasn't the cheesy one. So now on to our second question. I want to ask the question, why do we celebrate? First, why do we as humans need to celebrate? Why is it necessary that we need to celebrate? 
And second, why do Christians need to celebrate? Because according to Jean Vanier, a great French philosopher and the founder of L'Arche Communities, he said that a community that does not celebrate risks death. I read that and I thought, wow, that's impactful. Risks death. So we must celebrate, but why? So talk amongst yourselves real briefly and answer that question to one another. Why do you think we must celebrate as Christians? So let's ask the question first, why do we as humans need to celebrate? And for this, I want to start off with a story, a quite personal story to me. And the story starts about five or six months before Kayla and I got married. So we were engaged at this point. We were probably watching New Girl. And we had a conversation, and Kayla looks over at me. And she said, Trevor, you know, I've actually never really seen you cry before. Now, quick caveat, it's not like I'm not an emotional person. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I'm very expressive. I'm very open about what I'm feeling. But I realized in that moment, wow, I've never really cried in front of the woman who's going to be my wife. That's interesting. And we reflected on that together, and we realized that it wasn't because I'm not an emotional person, but we realized that really we had been dealt a good hand up to this point. We had so many celebratory moments as a couple but we really didn't encounter too much suffering up to that point. So we took that conversation, we kind of put it in our back pocket, and a few months went on. Now, in the midst of wedding planning, about five weeks before our wedding day, uh, I was studying, I was in a graduate school course at the time, and I remember leaning over my book and feeling my neck, and I felt what, looked, or what felt like a golf ball on my neck. I thought, okay, that's not supposed to be there. So I gave my father-in-law a call, and he immediately put me in touch with a neck doctor who then told me to go get a biopsy. And I remember going to that doctor's office to receive that biopsy. Now Kayla and I were in the room when the doctor went to go look at the results under a microscope. And he came back in the room and he looked me in the eye and he said, Trevor, you have stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma, lymphatic cancer. And I remember leaving that office, walking out the door and half crying, half losing control of my body, falling up against the wall and into my wife's arms, fiance at the time, just bawling. And I realized in that moment that we had been dealt a different hand, that we are going to encounter some deep suffering. Now I like to talk about the next five months after that, the next five, six months of my chemotherapy as the Midwestern seasons. Now, any of you who live in the Midwest, I'm from Wisconsin originally, you know that in the Midwest, you can encounter all four seasons within two days, right? One day it could be blizzarding and your car is covered and the next you're wearing a tank top. And then you go outside and you're in a puddle and then there's somehow still a crunchy leaf under a pile of snow. I don't know how it got there, but I'm thankful for it. Now, within those next five months, we experienced the seasons of life, more than we ever had before. And most importantly, we realized that we had cried more together than any other time in our life, which didn't take much up to that point, because at that point we had zero crying times together, and now we're up to uh, multiple hundred. But it wasn't that that really caught me off guard, though. It wasn't the crying, but it was the laughter. Not only did we cry more than we ever did in those months, we laughed more in those months than we ever had as a couple. And we realized a line from Ecclesiastes really spoke to our situation. And that line says, everything has its time for the, everything there is a season, 
and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh. And that line was given new meaning when we said our vows at our wedding and had to look at each other and say, I will be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I still tear up and choke up whenever I hear that. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And we did dance. We danced a lot. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. We as humans must celebrate. We must laugh because it provides a seasonal balance to the suffering that we will inevitably encounter. Because we don't get to choose when we suffer normally. Suffering normally comes out of nowhere and catches us off guard. But oftentimes, we have the choice every day to celebrate. Now, I think our culture has a really difficult time with suffering. Would you agree? And our culture has a really difficult time with death. Because I think we've never truly celebrated life so that when death appears, it catches us off guard. And similarly, suffering oftentimes catches us off guard because we've never taken the time to celebrate. But when we add celebration into the mix as simply one of the seasons of our lives, it's put into perspective. Suffering is just simply one of the seasons, and there's room for celebration. My wife and I learned that, and we felt like in those first five months, we had been married for more years than some of our friends who had been married for 10 years, because we experienced the Midwestern seasons, jam-packed. So that answers the question of why do humans need to celebrate? It gives perspective to our suffering, because life is seasonal. Now, why do Christians celebrate? Onto the second point here. And I want to start by saying that us as Christians, we celebrate because all of Scripture, I think, is one big story of a feast. Now, we start in Genesis. Perfect communion with God in the Genesis story, the Genesis myth in the Garden of Eden. We start there, and then they separated from God. But then God's like, yo, I'm giving you a second chance. Exodus 20, I'm giving you the Passover, a chance to rejoin around the table. But then they screwed up again because we're human. And then we see in Isaiah 25 this beautiful, beautiful vision on the mountain of this feast, this feast in heaven. But again, kept screwing up, kept distancing ourselves from God. And then we get the Gospels. And in the Gospels, in Matthew 25, we encounter the image, the parable of the wedding feast of heaven. Christ is saying heaven's going to be this wedding feast that we can look forward to. I'm pretty stoked about that. If you've ever been to a wedding, imagine that all the time. Yes. And then also we get in every single gospel story and in Corinthians, the institution of the Eucharist, we get this beautiful invitation into the sacrament. And last, in Revelation 19, we get the wedding feast of the Lamb, the culmination of all of creation in this wedding feast. So all of scripture is one big party. Okay, all of scripture is one big feast. I'll tone it down a little bit. But that's not how we as Christians normally act, am I right? If you were to walk into 90% of churches, would you say like, yeah, this is one big feast? So I think, but wait, we've lost something. We've lost something, and I attribute it to this man. Does anyone know who this is? Feast day was yesterday, I believe. St. Francis of Assisi, right? So we've got St. Francis. Now, everyone knows the early life of St. Francis, right? Um, I've 
been to and helped lead multiple retreats. And St. Francis, this story comes up in many retreats, many retreat talks. And does anyone know his early story? I'll share a little bit with you here. It's a good one, right? So he was the son of a a wealthy uh, merchant. And after a couple of spiritual experiences, a deep uh, calling to the spiritual life, he decided to give up and renounce all of his wealth. Now, that would be all in good if your dad sold pencils because you'd kind of just throw them by the wayside. But his dad didn't sell pencils. His dad was a wealthy textile merchant. Now, if you're a textile merchant and you're renouncing everything of your dad's wealth, what are you going to end up doing? You're going to end up throwing off all your clothes and streaking through the towns of Italy. (laughs) St. Francis's early story was a story of St. Francis renouncing all he had. And then there's the bishop behind him being like, dude, no, put your clothes on. So a lot of retreat talks end here. They end here, and so do a lot of us unknowingly with the way we look at Christianity. Because if we end the story here, what are we left with? We're left with a canonized streaker. And that's my worry. That's my worry is that we're left with a canonized streaker. Now we all know, okay, Trevor, the story doesn't end there. Keep keep it going, keep it going. So the story continues, and St. Francis goes on to found a beautiful religious order and gathers many people into the church, into the Christian community, and brings people closer to God. And we learn in his story that St. Francis renounced all of his wealth, but not simply just for renunciation, but he renounced so that he could announce the gospel of the Lord, so he could announce the good news. Finish the story so we're not left with a canonized streaker. Now, oftentimes, we hear something similar come up every Lenten season. So, St. Francis the Streaker is a very common uh, homily saint that comes up on that Ash Wednesday homily. And we're invited on that day to do something. And what's the most common question you hear asked of one another during Lent? What are you giving up, right? What are you giving up for Lent? Now I'll ask you this, have you ever heard someone come up to you and be like, hey, what are you doing extra for Lent? Have you ever heard that before? That's St. Francis the Streaker at work. Because we end the story at renunciation, and we don't carry on the conversation into annunciation. We ask, what are we fasting for? But we rarely ask what we're feasting on. Because why do we fast? It's that so we can feast. That's where celebration comes in. So think about Lent. We fast from chocolate so we can feast on taking the money we would otherwise spend and giving it away. We fast on Netflix, on New Girl, so we can feast on time spent with those whom we love. We fast, not for fasting alone, but for feasting. It's cyclical. It's seasonal. Now we get an ultimate image of this perfect annunciation in the story of Mary. Now, this is a beautiful painting by Henry Osawa Tanner. If you're ever in Philadelphia, go check out this painting. It's massive. And this is an image of the Annunciation because Mary is the ultimate example for us of how to be a saint in the modern day. Because Mary completely renounced all sin so that she could literally, physically announce Jesus out of her body into the world. She renounced so that she could announce Christ. That's beautiful. And we learn from the Marianists, who, if any of you know University of Dayton, they have this idea of every day 
we have the opportunity to be like Mary. Every day, we have the opportunity to give birth to Christ in the world. We renounce so that we can announce Christ into the world. So that's my challenge for why do we celebrate? For you as saints in becoming, to celebrate because we need it as humans. We need celebration because it provides balance to the suffering in our lives. And also as Christians, we need celebration because without it, we're simply canonized streakers. We must renounce so that we can announce, and we fast so that we can feast and give birth to Christ in this world. On board with that? So I want to do one last toast. I'll do one at the end. This won't be my last. I've got a good one. This is a, this is a funny toast. Everyone raise a glass. Real poo for my sham friends. Shampoo for my real friends. Cheers. That's not my serious one. Let's raise another glass. Sorry. Are you ready for this? There are good ships and there are wood ships, but the best ships are friendships. And may they always be. Cheers. Groan. So this last question, who celebrates? Who is the pinnacle image, the perfect example of the person that celebrates? Talk amongst yourself for one last minute here. So let's answer this final question for ourselves. We talked about who do we celebrate. We talked about why do we celebrate. Now let's recognize who it is that celebrates so that we can truly follow the, the example of that person. And a couple of years ago, when I was doing ministry at University of Dayton, a great band came to the campus called Rend Collective. Any of you heard of them before? Really solid folk Christian band. Lots of fun instruments that I think they totally made up, but that's okay. We'll cut them some slack. And they released an album right before they came to campus titled The Art of Celebration. Now, when I heard that and when I was studying this whole celebration thing, I'm like, ooh, the art. But wait, if there's an art, there assumes that there's an artist behind that art. And saying that something has an art assumes that there's a better version of it and a not so great version of it, right? So if we're celebrating, that means that there's better ways of celebrating, more fulfilling ways and less fulfilling ways. So I asked the question, I said, who is the artist of celebration? Who is that person? Any guesses? I'll let you uh, speak out loud again. Teacher coming out. Who is the artist of celebration? I heard Jesus. That's a solid answer. The Holy Spirit? All right, heard some good ones here. I think the artist of celebration is a giver. Now, I'm not talking about that book you read in eighth grade that they made an awful movie out of. I'm talking about those around us who give of themselves. Now, let me break this down a little bit with two helpful stories. First, another helpful story from my marriage experience. In wedding preparation, wonderful thing. Engagement's a beautiful season in itself. We were meeting with a local priest, Father Satish, who you might know, and he invited us to come over to have a conversation with Kayla and I. So we went over, and his small dog greeted us at the door, and we're like, oh, that's an adorable dog. And we walked in. We sat down in his comfy leather chairs in his office, and we're like, this is good. This is good. And he, he tossed us a couple soft questions, and we're like, oh, these are really good ones. Like, we're ready for marriage. This is solid. And then he's like, I've got one last question for you. Less of a question, but more of a piece of advice. And he started with the question, he said, do you want to know the number one reason 
why couples end up getting divorced. And Kayla and I looked at each other, we're like, yeah, that's the number one thing we want to avoid. Please tell us. Please tell us. And he said, the number one reason why couples get divorced is the moment when one spouse looks at the other and instead of saying, what can I give to you? Says, what can you give to me? Because we start putting these expectations on our spouse. We start putting these expectations, and when they don't meet those expectations, which we oftentimes don't voice, we gain animosity towards them. So that's not giving. That's not celebration. So the giver, the person who celebrates, is constantly asking the question, what can I give to you? What can I give to you? A second story, coming from the celebration of the Eucharist at Mass. Now, again, drawing upon working with college students, anyone uh, know of any teenagers who might say this? What's the number one reason why people don't like going to Mass? I don't. I don't care. I don't. I don't get anything out of this. I don't get anything out of this. Now take the words of Father Satish and apply them to that statement. The people who are voicing that are risking divorce with the entire community of the church because they're going and seeking constantly to receive instead of give. Because at the Mass, we're invited. We're invited to place ourselves on the altar along with the bread and the wine and the gifts. We offer ourselves as a gift to the church, to one another, to those in need just like Christ did, as an example of that giving. So the Christian who celebrates, the modern-day saint, asks these two questions constantly in every moment of celebration. What can I give to you, and what can I bring to this? Now imagine going to a party where everyone came with that mindset. That sounds like a pretty awesome party, right? There would be like 10 cups of Qdoba queso on the table. Uh, there would be so many bags of chips all this good craft beer, and constant conversation and true listening. Now imagine the flip side of that. You go and the pizza's already gone, the chips never existed, and you just see a bunch of Natty Light cans. Wah, wah. So we look at every moment in our life, as the modern day Christian, we're invited to ask these questions of each other. What can I give to you, and what can I bring to this? Now, Closing with all these, I want to have a brief way of saying, how do we do each one of these? Sure, you've given us the philosophy behind each one, but how do we do these in our daily lives? How do I put this into practice? First, we talked about who do we celebrate, and we realized that modern-day saints don't celebrate actions, but they celebrate the people around them. And one great way of celebrating the people around us is giving toasts, not actual toast. You can give toasts, that's okay too. But giving toast to one another. One of my best friends was getting married and I was throwing his bachelor party and there's about 15 of us there that not, not, not all of us were in the party, but we were all taking him out. And I told them all, I said, at some point in this night, I want you to raise a glass, interrupt the whole party and make a toast to Luis, just for him. Now, early on in the night, the toasts were very, uh, pretty elongated and pretty generous. Later on in the night, it'd be like, Luis, man. But each one was heartfelt. And I remember Luis coming up to me at the end and saying, that was the best gift I could have received on this day. I feel truly loved by my community. And we've continued that tradition for other bachelor parties. So how do we practice celebrating people rather than actions? 
give toasts. Second, we ask the question, why do saints celebrate? Why do we as humans celebrate? It's because it gives purpose and meaning and understanding to our suffering. And we also ask, why do Christians celebrate? And we answer that by saying that our lives are seasonal and that for every Good Friday, there's an Easter Sunday moment. We renounce so that we may announce and we fast so that we may feast. What's an easy way to do that? Try to look at time as chirological rather than chronological. We're so focused on what's in front of us immediately. This is a joyful moment. This is suffering. And we very rarely forget to turn around and recognize the moments in our life where we saw beauty and pain, suffering and joy in balance. Because we learn in the Easter Triduum that for every Good Friday, there's an Easter Sunday. And same too in our lives. So if we take a chirological view, we look at it from God's lens, we see that for every moment of suffering, there's a moment of joy in some manner. So I invite you to start thinking that way. Wear those goggles in a sort. And last, to figure out how we can ask those questions. How can we embody this mindset of, what can I give to you? What can I bring to this? It starts before we give the gift to figure out what our gift is to give. Introspection, reflection, discernment. Dwell upon what your gifts are as an individual. Because once you recognize those gifts, and once I recognize those gifts that I could give during my treatment, and now in my marriage, and now in my job, and in every day in my life, I realize I find myself giving that gift over and over again. I find, how do I give to you? How do I bring something to this? Now I want to close this by first saying thank you for celebrating with me tonight. And also an encouragement that we are all saints in becoming. And we just simply have to ask these questions of ourselves to grow as a community and to grow closer to God. Who do we celebrate? Why do we celebrate? And who celebrates? And if we ask these questions each day, we can truly go out into the world and give ourselves as a gift. So I invite you to go out and truly celebrate each moment in life, because every moment is worth celebrating. Thank you. What church did you get married in? It looks familiar. Got married in St. John the Baptist Church in Maria Stein, Ohio, a town of roughly 1,200. It's a wonderful town. And if you ever want to go on a beautiful pilgrimage, they have the second largest reliquary in the Northwestern Hemisphere, consisting almost 1,300 relics of different saints. Uh, so Maria Stein, Ohio. Oh, this is a long one. Why is it meaningful to celebrate someone or something? We've seen who it is about, why we do it, and who does it, but it all seems to explain why it is good for us. What greater good does it accomplish? I think that was at the core of what I was trying to get at, is that when we simply celebrate actions, it all becomes about ourselves. And we celebrate people, it takes it away from ourselves and puts it out back into really encountering Christ through the other. I think that answers that question. A plus. In college, I had the celebration mindset directed towards community. 
Only partied with friends. Missed mass because I didn't know anyone there. What advice can I give to other college students to prevent this happening to family members in the future? Sometimes it starts with celebrating in the moments where we already know how to celebrate. It starts with celebrating in those weekend moments or in the ordinary day-to-day -day moments before we can convince someone to celebrate in a way that's uncomfortable for them. Because sometimes going to church, going to mass might be an uncomfortable situation. But if we can encourage people to transform the ways that they're already celebrating, then they'll see, well, is there an even better way I can celebrate? Or an even deeper way that I can encounter Christ? And that's where the invitation to join us for the celebration of the Eucharist can take place. But how does celebrating make us holy? How doesn't it? Celebration is, as I said, rooted in scripture as the whole story that we participate in. How does it make us holy? Well, holiness means being set apart from the ordinary. Holiness is just being set apart from what everyone else is doing. And celebration is like so many other things in our lives that are very ordinary and part of what everyone else is doing. And to simply step outside of that and do something completely different is not what I think a saint is called to do. A saint is called to take something very ordinary and transform it from within. So how does celebration make us holy? It's because it's transforming something that we're doing and everyone's doing. And just like yeast in beer, it can help raise it and ferment that community into something beautiful and good. Amen? The person who walks into any celebration, really any situation at that, a meeting at work, a conversation that you know is going to be difficult, um, an uncomfortable dinner, anytime we walk into a situation and go with the mindset of what can I give in this situation or what can I bring to this, we're going to find that we oftentimes are going to walk away with more than what we came with. It's, it's really counterintuitive. It's in giving that we receive. So we can celebrate every moment of life by constantly giving of ourselves. Great question, great question. And that can come in many ways, and that's why I really encourage you all to recognize what are your gifts? Because I don't know what you can give. You're asking me a question that I can't answer. Now, I can tell you what I can give. I love to bake, and physically, I love giving people bread at work. Some of the project teams that I work on, I'm like, I bake bread for you today. They're like, yeah, that's a symbolic way of saying I'm giving to you. But also, I give because I love listening, and I can sit down and simply listen and receive and help ask those questions back. So it comes with recognizing what is your gift. And then once you recognize what that gift is, that God has simply given you uniquely, you can give that gift. And oftentimes it starts by listening and seeing sometimes what the other person needs too, but not always pushing what we think that person needs. So it's this give and take of what do I think the person might need in this moment? What am I prayerfully discerning they need? But also what am I being called to give in this moment? So the question was, God calls us to be counterintuitive in the way that we approach the world. And then the follow-up was, how does it work? How does being counterintuitive work? And that's that beautiful paradox of holiness, of being set apart, of being counterintuitive. Because it's like in that song, it says it's in giving that we receive. Anyone who's selfish is like, no, it's in receiving that I receive. But we realize that in virtue ethics and seeking to take very ordinary moments and transforming them, which is a very counterintuitive thing. People oftentimes think, I need to encounter God in this mountaintop experience. We encounter God through ordinary moments. 
And it's every counterintuitive moment is a desire or a call to dive into one of the mysteries of the church. I love that term. I think counterintuitive and mystery can go pretty parallel right here. The mysteries of the church are mysteries for a reason because we don't need to understand them to fall in love with them. The mysteries are an invitation to draw deeper into them where we fall deeper and deeper in love because we never truly understand love. It's counterintuitive. Love is counterintuitive. But that's the beauty of it. That's what keeps us diving deeper into it. Well, thank you all for having me. I truly appreciated the time to uh, share with you and hear your conversations uh, and to share some pizza and a beer. Thank you. Thank you.